Welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am Director of ECFR and I am very happy to be coming to you today with a very special podcast. It's the end of January, so it must be the European Foreign Policy Scorecard. This is the moment every year when we try and look back over the last 12 months to see how Europe collectively has done in terms of its engagements with the rest of the world, looking at all the different issues which Europe has been engaged with, where the different member states and European institutions have got involved, how well they've done, who the leaders and slackers are amongst the European member states. And this is the sixth edition of the European Foreign Policy Scorecard. We have looked at 68 different policy areas organised in six chapters and how not only the 28 member states but also the EU institutions have done. I'm joined by a star-studded cast to chew through the performance of the EU over the last year and to think about what it means for the year ahead as well. First up is Susie Dennison, who is the director of our European Power Programme. And she's also the mastermind behind the scorecard, not for the first time either. Um, second uh, special guest is an ECFR council member, Robert Cooper, Sir Robert Cooper, who is a former director general for politico-military affairs at the European Union, one of the founders of the European External Action Service, but has also been at the forefront of, of European uh, foreign policy for, for many, many years, uh, including being... Uh, heavily involved in the drafting of the first uh, European security strategy uh, over a decade ago now. My third guest is Almut Müller, who is the co-director of our office in Berlin. Um, fourth up is uh, Kadri Leek, who is from our Wider Europe programme. She's sitting with me here in London. And from Brussels, we have uh, Frederick Veslau, who is the director of the Wider Europe programme. So um, without further ado, why don't we go straight into the substance of it? How did uh, the EU do last year, Susie? So I think it's fair to say that 2015 was a very difficult year for the European Union um, and one in which the refugee crisis uh, dominated everything. Um, the, the, the results of that were seen across almost all areas of um, foreign policy that we looked at through the scorecards. Um, it, but it was particularly um, clear in the, the changing balance of power um, that we saw through the course of the year um, uh, in, in relation to the European Union and its neighbourhood. Um, at the EU-Turkey summit, um, at the Valletta summit with Af African states, um, the European Union found itself very much um, in the position of demandeur as it tried to grapple um, uh, with the, 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 the numbers of um, arrivals in the EU and needed the support um, of these, uh, uh, these partner countries to help it manage its borders. Um, in that year... Um, we also saw uh, uh, some notable successes, however, um, uh, though there were challenges in terms of the response to the refugee crisis moving um, forward as quickly um, as, as one would have liked and, and indeed around implementation of the decisions taken at the Council. Um, uh, it's important to note that 2015 also saw a diplomatic triumph in the um, agreements of the um, Iran nuclear deal. Um, and uh, we also saw a very positive year 
year in relation to um, uh, the EU strategy on Russia, in that in this um, increasingly difficult environment, uh, EU unity did hold together in terms of um, action around um, sanction renewal. Um, and I think the final point to make um, about 2015 um, is that this was very much a year where um, the role of member states in foreign policy um, making came to the fore and um, that of Germany in particular. Um, through uh, the Greek uh, crisis in the first half of the year and through the refugee crisis in the second half of the year, um, Angela Merkel's leadership was absolutely crucial. Um, it was very much in demand from other European member states, but as the year wore on, uh, the response to that um, leadership um, uh, uh, became uh, more more difficult um, as, as other member states um, saw, saw Germany um, uh, moving to dominate um, all aspects of the of, of the of the refugee crisis response. Brilliant! Wow, that's a lot, quite a lot to chew on. So, Robert, you've I'm just thinking about your career. You've kind of been uh, right at the forefront of a lot of the big events of the last few decades in European foreign policy. I think you were running policy planning in the British Foreign Office at the end of the Cold War. You dealt quite a lot with the Balkans Wars, particularly the decision to to bomb Kosovo. You were involved in the Afghan conference, the Bonn conference on Afghanistan after 9-11. I think you were in Brussels dealing with the, the kind of divisions amongst member states after the Iraq war. You were there for the Arab uprisings, Crimea. How does 2015 fit into, uh, into the kind of uh, big picture of European foreign policy in terms of the size of the challenge and the effect on European unity? I just say in my defense, I never bombed anybody. <laughs> actually, I missed, all the, I missed all the bombings. I was. But you made the case for bombing was, rather uh, eloquently uh, uh, in 1999. Um, <laughs> uh, yes and no. We, anyway, see, um, what year does this look like? Well, this looks like, this looks like a, a year with a completely different kind of crisis from anything that we've seen before. Um, and a, a crisis whose volume exceeds anybody's, I think, worst guess. Um, even the most pessimistic commentators haven't talked about a million refugees arriving in Europe. Um, and when you, and even when you talk about it, that's highly theoretical. When they actually arrive, then you have practical problems on a scale that nobody has faced for 50 years. Um, so that Europe was unprepared for this. Uh, that's not a surprise that it was handled badly that's not a surprise the real question is how quickly can we recover from the from the shock I think the, the positive thing that, that, I, that I see at the moment but there's still time to go is that although uh, Susie said something about this was the year in which the member states take the lead that's life anyway that's what, that's what happens in the world they're the ones with the power um, uh, but, for the most part, um, uh, they took the lead one way or another in a European context. Um, mostly, um, it was, it's true that there were people who closed, who closed borders. Um, uh, mostly they did that temporarily. Um, but most of the reaction by, every, by everybody to this crisis has actually been to call for another European summit and to demand that Europe do something. Europe hasn't done very much uh, and we'll discuss maybe a bit later some of the things that they have done when we come to talk for example about Turkey um, but so far what I see broadly speaking looks to me like a European response not very effective at the moment 
but still that's the best way to handle the problem and I haven't seen anybody make a serious case that it can't be handled by, by Europe or that it can be handled any better any other way. Okay, well, maybe um, it's a good moment to bring Anmut in because Berlin has well, probably put itself in the eye of the cry, in the eye of the storm. But it certainly felt quite stormy when I was there earlier in the week with you, Almut. How do you see things from Berlin? Yeah, it is. It is true. I mean, the picture is quite quite intriguing, really, here in in Berlin at the moment for um, two reasons. As, as Susie pointed out, I mean, there is a certain paradox in this situation that, on the one hand, Germany is in the scorecard leading on eight out of uh, 12 of our key areas. Um, so it really has built even stronger resources and potential for leadership. But when it comes to sort of using that leadership to, to shape um, the most important and vital issue um, that uh, also Robert talked about, the refugee crisis, this has really not played out so far. Um, and secondly, we have seen over the past year that Germany has really gone, seen as a domestic moment in foreign policy, which is a relatively new thing. Um, with so many um, people arriving in Germany and actually really across Germany, Germans now feel that the outside, the way and shape of the outside world really affects how the situation is in, in the country. And we've seen over the past weeks and, and months that the domestic pressure on Angela Merkel's government has risen and it's really um, most of it focused on, on her chancellorship. So Angela Merkel's future is tied to whether she can manage to come to a um, sort of conclusion um, with other European uh, uh, governments on how to bring down numbers of arrivals, how to still keep a humane uh, face um, with regard to people that are you know, leaving countries um, where they're persecuted, where their life is in is in danger, uh, while at the same time keeping a country um, in order. And this is really what Germans have felt, um, a loss of order, a loss of control. Um, this is a potentially dangerous situation. And actually, this is shaping um, Germany as, as a foreign policy player on the one hand. Um, if you speak to people here in Berlin these days, um, the lens through which they look at not only the neighborhood, but at wider international affairs is very much uh, shaped uh, now by the refugee crisis and um, it also shapes the way that Germany looks at the European Union and while I share uh, Robert's view that largely of course I mean it is possible to come to a joint European response um, and certainly it's technically possible to deal um, with, with the refugee crisis politically it's, it's very demanding and this city um, in conversation is very aware of this um, with elections coming up in important federal states um, a little bit later in the in the year in the spring, actually, you feel the domestic English really pushing, and uh, the pressure on the Merkel government is is growing by the day. Um, and the question is, if Germany fails to forge a joint European coalition on this major foreign policy question, what does this do to Germany as a player within the European Union? And we've seen going it alone um, uh, of Germany with regard to Turkey, for instance, lately. Um, and that is probably something that we'll see more because the sheer pressure, domestic pressure on the government is bringing Germany to a point where it possibly starts to reconsider how useful um, the European Union as a whole can be in this. Um, it, it's Merkel's survival, but it's also, um, you know, the question as to 
to how useful uh, the union can be in solving one of the major vital problems for, for this country. And I think 2016 will, will be a very formative year um, for Germany's role in, in the European Union. Thanks a lot, um, Almut. So we're going to come to the Turkish question you raise a, a bit later. But before that, um, maybe, uh, Kadri, you can come in um, on two issues. One thing which would be great to hear about is this whole question about the divisions and how other countries see Germany. I remember being going to Brussels with you at one point and we saw um, a senior official there who came from uh, an Eastern European country who was very traumatized by the East-West divisions. And a lot of people like that person had been uh, deeply scarred by the 2003 experience when Europe got split into new and old member states. But it seems to be much worse now, the divisions over the refugee crisis. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that. And then we don't want to leave the one ray of light, which uh, Susie kind of shot out, which was our policy on Russia. So we should come back to that as one of the things which seems to be going well at some later stage. But maybe we'll have another round and everyone can come in on that. Yes, I think, well, in um, eastern part of Europe, Germany has friends as well as as challenges. I know of many countries who are actually very supportive of Germany and who think that Germany has tried to handle its leadership role, not least in Russia, because Russia is what tends to matter to the Eastern countries very well. And though, I mean, you can argue that it is bad that policy has been nationalized and Germany and France has taken leadership roles uh, managing what ought to be European foreign policy. But that said, they have managed it relatively well. And that, I think, is acknowledged uh, in, in many corners. And Germany has also done a lot to reach out, to explain policies, to consult, especially with countries it considers um, sensitive. But then again, of course, there is another camp, and now very prominently led by Poland, the sort of anti-German camp. Uh, who wants to create some sort of intra-European alliance that challenges Germany's power and leadership and comes with with different policy vision. And that is something that um, I don't think has found enthusiastic supporters so far, but that is something that troubles also many countries because, you know, I come from Estonia, which is a really small country, and Estonia's key to of national security or survival is Western unity and us being part of it. And so dramatic German-Polish split in, in Europe is pretty nightmarish scenario for countries like, like the Baltics. And to the extent they can, they will do all they can to prevent it. But Russia. Yeah, it probably is a success story in 2015, although my initial grades were significantly lower. Later, <laughs> I corrected them. But that, I suppose, depends on where you look, because I was looking more into the future and hence my more gloomy assessment. But really, if one looks at the action in 2015, it is pretty impeccable. Europe renewed sanctions twice, uh, robustly, without excessive discussions. But what became evident for me when I was writing the chapter, um, you can see that Europe is united in its analysis on one level. We see Russia as a problem, but we have no unanimous view on what are Russia's policy drivers, goals, and how really to influence Russia. And, and there you have debates that I'm afraid will manifest more prominently in, in the coming year 
you know, should you, should you engage with Russia? Should you offer to engage with the Eurasian Union? Will that make Russia mellow on Ukraine and, and, and maybe help us on Syria? Or, or vice versa, will it show Russia that the West is weak and it just can pressure more in order to achieve some of its unholy claims and so forth? Or our policy on Russia and Syria is sort of in a way testifies to our wishful thinking. We have always hoped that Russia will uh, persuade Assad to leave and, and hence help us to solve the Syrian conflict. Now Russia has intervened in Syria with the aims that are actually opposite. And we, ha we never saw that, uh, that Russia's thinking was different. Robert Schrock's, uh well, some of us <laughs> saw, but not, not all. So these kinds of things, uh, I think, will play a prominent role in the future. And to me, this all means that actually we need to invest more into debating Russia-related issues in so, Frederick, I want to come to you about Turkey in a second, but maybe before we do that, Robert, did you want to add anything on Russia? And Robert also reminded me through uh, his body language that we'd forgotten Iran as another as another kind of uh, uh, big success. Actually, not I, I mentioned Iran. No, no, you had yes. it. Sorry, no, no, Susie, <laughs> as ever, was completely immaculate in her presentation of the issues, I, I but I forgot Iran. I just said two words on Russia. I, I don't disagree with anything that Kadri said. I don't think that this was a year of spectacular success for the European Union, but it was not a year of spectacular failure either. Uh, and this is a question of how long the position can be maintained and how long uh, and actually uh, what happens to what happens to sanctions and what happens to Russia. But this is clearly a policy handling Russia requires stubbornness and requires a long-term policy uh, and changing your policy every year doesn't work you have to be able to wait um, I say two words on Iran and this is a very long-running story um, yeah and, and you were involved in <coughs> and I was involved in part of it in a very boring part of it but the the real the real European credit Actually, we should go back in the scorecard and revise some of the scores up because the real European contribution was in getting the thing started. Yeah, um, but that was before uh, the scorecard. And in, and, and in the imposition of sanctions, which were uh, absolutely important. The UN sanctions didn't matter. What mattered was what the US and the, and the EU did separately. Um, and that was, a, that was the thing that mattered, that plus the luck of getting Obama and Rouhani in at the same time. The final negotiations, the U.S., uh, it was essentially about, it was a U.S.-Iranian deal. Um, Europe helped keep the rest together, and that's not a small achievement when there are quite a lot of them. Like, Maybe just to yeah. say, if, uh, if there are any um, uh, scorecard aficionados listening to this podcast, um, Robert's point about um, long-term strategy is one that's been reflected in a change to the scorecard this year, that in order to look at um, uh, strategy over the long term, we've split the outcome score down into um, uh, strategy and impact in order to take account of policies which are well thought through um, and with a likely, um, with, with a probability of um, having a positive effect over the long term but which cannot uh, produce results in any given year okay so this the the moment we've been waiting for from you frederick is uh, to tell us about turkey because turkey has uh, gone through quite a remarkable transformation in terms of its relationship with the european union where 
Um, the focus is much more on what we need from Turkey than on what Turkey uh, needs from us at the moment as a result of the refugee crisis. How do you see um, Turkey, our performance on Turkey collectively uh, last year in 2015 and, and also going forwards? Yeah, I think um, definitely the EU's relationship with Turkey is one of the main stories in, in the scorecard for um, 2015. And, you know, the highlight is this sort of re-energization of, of relations with Turkey. Um, I mean, this comes after years of, of neglect, I would see, where the accession process has been more or less stuck. And we haven't really treated Turkey in a very strategic way. I mean, you know, as we all know, it was a refugee crisis that really prompted um, the EU to, to turn towards Turkey. And um, this is because the, the, there's been a monumental shift in the balance of power. As, as Susie mentioned, you know, we really are the mondeurs in this relationship. And I think the, the November um, deal that came out of the EU-Turkey summit is, is, is quite telling. I mean, this is a very sort of transactional deal where we basically give Turkey a number of things, such as, you know, the opening of a, a negotiation chapter, two summits a year, high-level dialogue. Um, we saw Mogherini and Commissioner Han in Turkey only earlier this week, um, you know, promise to move on visa liberalization, the three billion euros for Syrian refugees in Turkey. You know, all of this in exchange for um, Ankara, um, you know, acting on stemming the flow of, of, of refugees to, to Europe. So, you know, this really is uh, very much a very concrete manifestation of this new transactional relationship. I think the big question is, will it hold or will we be disappointed and will the Turks be disappointed? And this will obviously depend very much on, you know, whether we can both deliver on, on our promises. And I think, you know, signs are not very positive. We saw only a few weeks ago how um, some European leaders came out and, and, and said, oh, look, you know, Turkey actually has to do more in terms of stemming the flow of refugees. The number um, hadn't really gone down that, that much. Um, and on the Turkish side, I think that the big question is, you know, on, on accession, for example, can the EU deliver on accession? Can we open more chapters? And, and to some extent, it's not really um, up to... Um, what happens in Brussels, but, but it's, it's very much linked to, to the Cyprus um, settlement and, and the Nicosia, which is sort of blocking the opening of, of further chapters. I think one, one issue to really look at is how the EU chooses to focus on um, the human rights situation and, and the, the state of democracy in Turkey, because um, the situation has deteriorated in 2015. But in this new transactional relationship, the EU has taken a very muted approach to this. So it was, it was quite telling that the statement that came out of the declaration that came out of the November summit was virtually silent on Copenhagen criteria on, on any of the sort of the, the values um, basket. And the question is sort of how long um, this, this can hold. So I, I think, you know, going into 2016, um, the EU-Turkey relationship will be one that we'll have to follow very closely. Um, and obviously, it's, into, it's, it's integral to, you know, handling the, the, the refugee crisis. What's your take on, on uh, the chances of success, Robert? Well, the, I mean, I think Turkey objectively hasn't met the Copenhagen criteria for some time. Um, on the other hand, the question of uh, Turkey actually joining the European Union, um, even if things went quickly, is still somewhere in the future. So there's time for that to uh, 
time for the European Union to have another look, time for the Turks to change the way in which they operate. But at the moment, you'd say that things are getting worse. But, uh, I, I'd say that that was a, something of an understatement in terms of Turkey getting in the EU. But in terms of us being able to, to in terms of Turkey being able to save Angela Merkel and um, help on the refugees crisis, what, what do you think the, the chances are of that? I don't know. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I mean, uh, I, I think even there, the question is a re- really quite complicated about what's actually happening in the uh, refugee camps in Turkey and right. the extent to which the refugees are able to live something like normal lives in Turkey. Uh, I think that's it's, anyway. It's not a question I would like to try and answer sitting here in London. You have to be there on the ground to know. Okay. There is a question which lots of people are waiting for us to answer in London, though, which is uh, to look at the league tables of leaders and slackers um, amongst European countries. It's the the one bit of the reports which tends to be most carefully studied by different governments around the EU. So, Susie, do you want to put everyone out of their misery and let us know who who the top leaders and slackers are? Yes, well, unsurprisingly, (laughs) top of the leaderboard is Germany um, with uh, eight rankings out of the um, a possible 12 marks. Um, one note on this exercise this year, we have focused down on the 12 key foreign policy challenges um, in 2015. Um, so the total scores um, are not uh, comparable with three previous years, but the comparative uh, scores, as in uh, the, the, the rankings between member states are. So Germany's in first place. Um, then we have uh, a group of states in second place uh, with, with five leader rankings. That's the Netherlands, Sweden and the UK. Um, this um, is for slightly different um, reasons, although Netherlands and the UK are quite close. Um, all of them supportive on Russia sanctions, um, Netherlands and UK on Western Balkans and Turkey, and also aid to the host countries in the region um, uh, affected by the refugee crisis. Um, Sweden, with more of an Eastern focus, we've given it um, uh, leader rankings for um, uh, its role in uh, the um, Eastern Partnership um, region, um, and also um, for its uh, contributions on um, overseas aid generally, along with the UK. Um, in um, in third place then is France. Um, France uh, uh, has, um, but is no, France although it, it comes below this first group um, uh, in, on the leaderboard, it has um, notably um, been the strongest performer on security questions. I think this year, and it's the only um, country uh, that we have rated as a leader on overseas deployment, where I think collectively um, uh, European um, investment leaves something to be desired. Um, But France has also played an important role on Russia sanctions, on reform in Ukraine um, and uh, also uh, in the TTIP talks, um, like some of the other um, strong leaders I've mentioned. On the slacker board, um, the the, the two lead slackers um, in joint places are Lithuania and Poland. Um, I think uh, uh, that the Polish story um, in the European Union is is clearly um, well known um, uh, uh, this year with with, with the change of government and um, uh, a move away from from the centre of of, of European policy making. Um, Lithuania um, is, uh, is more surprising, although I should add that um, uh, 
uh, that Lithuania does also have three leader rankings, um, as does Poland. So um, uh, this this shouldn't be taken in isolation. But both uh, Poland and uh, Lithuania have been ranked as, as slackers for um, their contributions to overseas deployment, uh, contributions specifically to humanitarian aid to the MENA region, and um, they're a, a sort of an investment-only strategy towards um, Asia and China uh, with very little space for um, raising human rights concerns. Okay. So, um, I don't know, Kadri, as a, as a fellow Balt, whether you want to, to talk about <laughs> <laughs> the, the Lithuanian story and the Polish story, um, or, uh, or if you have anything else to say. I mean, is there anything surprising to you about those rankings? Um, on either the positive or the negative sides? Yes, it's no, normally the three Baltic states are doing relatively similarly, so it was a surprise that Lithuania uh, sticks out like that. Uh, but other than that, um, it's with the small countries, it's, it's often the dilemma, you know, how um, so on certain issues they have strong emotions and they are very vocal, but that in itself is not necessarily policy. They are sort of active supporters, as we have classified. So, and, and some of the policy areas where the Baltic states actually lead, or at least say Estonia leads on cyber issues, that is something we do not cover. So my advice to smaller countries would still be that, you know, pick your priority and try to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Try to make yourself the spe best specialist mm -hmm. on an issue mm -hmm. or, or area. Mm -hmm. And that's your way to influence other people's minds. Mm -hmm. If you're just the loudest, that has some effects, but only limited. Actually, this is very good advice for small countries. Luxembourg is the model. They're interested in taxation, banking industry and broadcasting. Is this advice for small countries in dealing with our leader slacker like process or general foreign policy? In general. <laughs> I think it's good in general, but it certainly will help with our leader slacker course as well. I think you may have been a bit unfair on Lithuania, actually. Lithuania is, is on the whole, in my experience, rather active. I look forward to discussing this with yes. the Lithuanians. So, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll raise it with you, Susie. But, um, Robert, were you at all surprised by the people, by the countries at the top, at the top of the table? I mean, having Sweden and the Netherlands up there in joint second place with the UK, is that something which you were surprised at? And France being a little behind? Well, I was surprised that the UK was up there, <laughs> actually. And I think that I think this is a. Um, I think this is an exercise which should be, I was going to say, not taken too seriously, <laughs> because I think that the, the, the question of, you know, a country which is highly cooperative in a large number of areas may not get that well ranked. If they do something like the UK has actually been pursuing quite a reasonable policy of putting a lot of money into humanitarian efforts in the Middle East, it has to be something which is a bit visible and a bit measurable, but it doesn't. It's not very good at testing the overall quality of cooperation. So it's the silent followers that we should really be supporting, rather than the the kind of uh, the, the leaders and the slackers. They don't just follow; they contribute <laughs> a lot of the time. But. Okay, well, um, the other kind of thing which we tend to look at, Susie, is which policy areas we performed the, the best and the worst at. Do you want to maybe, we've got tables, I think, at the top 10 and bottom 10, but maybe just give us the top couple and the bottom couple just to, to give people a flavour of... Um, sure. 
well the the the, the top two um we've we've talked about um already as the two high points in the year um they are diplomatic measures and sanctions against russia uh, and relations with iran uh yeah and um also um linked to that um in the us chapter relations with the us on iran um so actually sorry that's that's three um at the top um the lowest scoring components um also linked to what i was saying more generally about um uh investment in security um uh um as a as a collective european issue um the lowest uh, scoring components are regional security in the middle east and north africa and as frederick touched on um uh, engagement on rule of law democracy and human rights in turkey Okay, I don't know whether you two um, want to comment a bit on why, uh, you know, do those tell us anything about the EU? If you look at those the places where we're doing well and badly, do you think there are any lessons we can draw? Well, it, it, I think it is a pity to see engagement on the rule of law and human rights in Turkey as an area of underperformance, because that was an area where in the past one would have seen a very strong performance. Uh, but I think it probably says more about Turkey than about the European Union. And possibly also to add, it also says something about the um, the position which Europe finds itself in vis-à-vis -vis Turkey at the moment, that um, in a year which has seen significant backsliding in Turkey, um, it, it, it hasn't been possible to, um, to push on that. Uh, but actually, I don't think pushing would have done much, made much difference anyway. I mean, these, in the end, these are very domestic matters settled by domestic politicians for domestic reasons, and you have to be quite lucky to make a difference. It's the same in Russia. Uh, European influence on human rights, I think we created with zero, and I think fairly so. Uh, things were deteriorating in Russia. Europe could make no difference. But at the same time, I wouldn't blame Europe too harshly for that either. Because if, if you look at policy priorities, then clearly fixing the situation around Ukraine is something that Europe could and should do, absolutely. Whereas on human rights, it will always be more uh, difficult. And if we really, really tried, that would involve some pretty unholy trade-off as concerns other issues. So I think sad as it is, Europe actually has got its priorities right on, on Russia. Okay. So maybe as we come to an end of this uh, podcast, I can ask you for uh, each to make a prediction about, um, you know, based on what we learned from 2015, what issue do you think we should be looking at for, for, for the next year, for 2016? Um. I would say um, for for delivery on the the foreign policy part of the refugee crisis uh, response, I think that's going to be um, really uh, critical um, for for Europe over uh, the coming year. Moving from sort of managing um, uh, the flows that we've got now to to the to the longer term perspective. What about you, Robert? Well, that it's clear that the the continuing refugee crisis and I don't think it's just going to be the next year either I think it's going to be several years to come that's clearly going to be a major issue uh, the other thing to look at this year is going to be the the global strategy review um, and the question um, what in concrete terms might come out of this not is there a nice document but is something going to happen yeah, well, I will be looking at Russia anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
and will and it still be there in 2016? I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it still might be there. <laughs> and I think the big thing to look for uh, in, in Russia-EU context is, of course, the fate of sanctions. Will we ha be having more discussions about sanctions or our overall strategy for Russia? Um, and what will that discussion be like if we if we will have it? Because uh, I mean, it can be very fruitful. It can be completely disastrous. It could go either way. And of course, sanctions. If we uh, lift the sanctions without Russia fulfilling the Minsk criteria, of which one is important, that is Ukraine restoring control of its border, then I think we will lose most of our credibility in Moscow's eyes for years to come. So, Frederick, what do you think we should be looking out for for next year? I think uh, another thing to uh, look out for in 2016 is really uh, Minsk implementation. Um, you know, there are a number of, of challenging things that have to happen. Um, there's supposed to be uh, local elections in the areas in the Donbas controlled by uh, the Russian proxies. Um, and then, you know, according to the Minsk agreement, Russia is also supposed to uh, hand back control over the border. Um, we'll have to see whether this actually happens. I mean, the EU in 2015 linked the full implementation of uh, the Minsk agreement to the lifting of, of sanctions. Um, but there have been voices uh, within the European Union about, you know, easing sanctions if there is proge progress. So we'll have to see how, how this discussion uh, moves forward. Um, crunch time would be sort of May, June in 2016 when um, the sanctions prolongation discussion really will, will come up um, in the European Council. Thank you very much for an absolutely fascinating discussion about Europe's performance over last year. We promise that we'll be back next year to see whether we were right about what was going to happen, but also to, to review the EU's performance at the end of the year. There is a link to our famous scorecard on the uh, website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. And there are all sorts of beautiful graphics on the website as well. You can look at how the different member states are doing, which issues matter the most. And we very much encourage you to uh, tell us what you thought of the, the scorecard, whether we got it right, whether we got it wrong. Um, please do write to us. Uh, you can write to me directly at mark.leonard.ecfr.eu or leave comments on the website. And um, uh, we'd love to hear what you think. So thank you very much from uh, Susie Dennison, Robert Cooper, Anup Muller, Kadri Leek, uh, Frederick Westlout, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botel-Atsinaro. Mm -hmm.